and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin there. You can't miss it. It's bright orange. For the rest of you, you can either open up your Bible apps there or use your bulletin or open up your own Bibles. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 for the first kind of half. And then we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 for the second uh, part of the sermon. Before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we do love Your Word. We're so appreciative that You have given it to us, that You have condescended to communicate with us. And so, Lord, we ask that You would indeed speak to us, give us truth for our growth and for our transformation today. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our denomination, as you know if you've been paying attention the last couple weeks, has kind of agreed amongst ourselves to take this year and examine the relationships that our churches have with our communities and and to see if there are areas of repentance that are possibly needed. Um, Then, this coming up June, our denomination is actually... Lord willing, going to have specific recommendations about what that might look like in the areas of segregation and the areas of the civil rights era. Now, in preparation for that, we have been looking at the Scriptures now to examine where we as a church collectively may need to repent. I will admit it has not been uncontroversial, and I will admit that today, not by design, just by the nature of the case, today is probably going to be the most controversial topic. We're going to talk about generational sin and generational repentance. So to get us into the proper mindset, before we go to God's Word, I want to do a little thought experiment for you. Here we go. How many of you, and please raise your hands, this is not rhetorical, how many of you have ever celebrated the 4th of July in any way whatsoever? Please raise your hands. Okay. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Those of you who have your hands up, keep your hands up if you were around during the Revolutionary War. No one. Wait. So none of you were there, but you celebrate it today. Isn't that a little weird? I mean, you didn't individually do anything in the Revolutionary War. Why on earth would you commemorate it and celebrate it? Okay, let's try another one. Birthdays. How about this one? How many of you have parties for your mom every year on your birthday? No one? But but she's the one who did all the work. You just showed up and cried. I mean, isn't it odd that you would not celebrate the person who did the thing? You didn't do the thing, and yet you're celebrating. That's weird. Isn't it odd that we as individuals celebrate things that actually had nothing to do with us directly? It's almost as if we instinctively know that there's some connection there. That those things are somehow our things. Even though we didn't do them, we have some kind of claim on them and they on us. But we're going to see a very similar thing in our text this morning. We're looking at a prayer that Daniel makes in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is older at this point in the book of Daniel. He's been in Babylon for almost 60 plus years. And 
What is so great is, it's kind of like the Bible within the Bible. He tells us at the very beginning of chapter 9, he is reading in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who talked about the Babylonian exile. He's reading in that, and he sees that Jeremiah says it's going to last 70 years. And he pulls out his abacus, and he's like, it's like you're 68. It's coming. We're going to go home soon. And he looks around, and he realizes nothing has changed in God's people. God's people have not owned their sin. They have not owned their guilt. Even after 70 years of exile, all the stuff that caused exile remains. And so Daniel intervenes in this prayer, looking ahead to God's blessing, and he prays this prayer for a people who have not repented. So if you would, would you look with me at Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 11. This is God's Word. I prayed to the Lord my God... And made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. This is God's word. So as we see this prayer from Daniel, the very first thing we have to say about it is Daniel is absolutely not praying a prayer of individual confession. He looks back 68 years to before the Babylonian exile to the entire period of history there and he recognizes that somehow those things are his things and he repents for those things. He repents of his and his people's present and past sins hoping for God's promise. And that gives us our theme for today Maybe you want to write this down in your bulletin or maybe use this over lunch for discussion as you think about the sermon. Here's where we're going to go today. The world knows our gospel is real when we reconcile through repentance. We're going to look at a real gospel for real life creates real repentance. So let's look at that first. Real repentance. As we walk through this text, we see that Daniel says literally he made confession. He's owning a reality, and then he then defines that reality in verse 5. Let's dig in at verse 5 with me. Let's look. He says, 
We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. He says we. He puts himself and his contemporaries right with those from the past. And note that he is not blame shifting. He's saying those people. He's saying we did this. He includes himself. He goes on to admit all levels of leadership from the king on down didn't heed God's word. This is all past stuff. This all happened in the past. This is all part of life before captivity. Daniel wasn't a king. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't even a forefather. And yet he owns corporately that his forebearers, we, he says, ignored God. See, he sees that the current state of affairs is a result of their sin. But he doesn't say their, he says us, forgive us. You see, the people of Israel were living in covenant with God. And they broke that covenant. And God promised them blessings, but he also promised them curses. And so they, for all intents and purposes, chose the curses. And those curses came true. Look with me at verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He is experiencing the results for what others have done. There is no doubt. Daniel is claiming. He is repenting of things he was not part of. It happened before he was born. This is a clear repenting of shortcomings of a previous generation. Is this a meaningless prayer? Is this an empty gesture? I mean, how do we apply this to ourselves in our time? I mean, do we just ignore it because it's Old Testament? What do we do with this? See, it's no accident that this... We're here in this text on Palm Sunday as a run-up to Easter because as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, He rounds a corner of the path and He gets a view of the entire city and He starts weeping. Luke's Gospel tells us why He was weeping. Because Jerusalem would not repent. And so they were going to suffer the consequences of that lack of repentance. A hard-hearted resistance to repentance caused our Lord to weep and proclaim judgment upon them. A judgment that would come after His death and resurrection. His death and resurrection did not make the judgment on Jerusalem go away. Rome destroyed Jerusalem. They left nothing. That's a historical reality. The big question is, Okay, well, how does the gospel speak then to these curses in Daniel? How does the gospel correspond to our repentance? What does the gospel have to say about this? What do we do? Well, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he knew that he would not leave. Although he did not deserve it, he was going to die in Jerusalem, and he knew it. Jesus did not participate in the guilt of Adam's sin. Because of the virgin birth, unlike the rest of us, he was not born guilty. 
Instead, out of love, Jesus chose to pick up sin that was not His and pay the price with His very blood for that sin. He wasn't responsible. He didn't do it. He didn't even earn it. But He did it out of love in order to bring reconciliation between God and humanity. You see, Jesus was the newer and truer Israel. You can't really read through Matthew's Gospel and not see that Matthew's trying to make the point that Jesus is the newer and truer Israel. And so Jesus... Unlike Israel in Daniel's day, Jesus did uphold his end of the deal. He did not fail. He did not earn curses. He earned blessings instead of curses. But in order to bring rebellious sinners to himself, Jesus took up cursings he didn't earn, gave the blessing of life and righteousness to his church who didn't earn it, so that we might be reconciled to God. He died to pay the penalty for Israel's disobedience. Jesus Christ is the forgiveness that Daniel begged for. Don't miss that. Jesus Christ is the forgiveness that Daniel begs for here in Daniel 9. And so as we apply this text to the corporate life of our church, let's be very clear. We are not looking to repent of the sins of previous generations of Christians in order to get forgiveness from God. Or to avoid some sort of curses, Jesus has taken care of that on the cross. That is not what this is about. Instead, we are looking to be real and honest with ourselves and our community, specifically with our minority brothers and sisters in Christ around us. So let's be real and let's be honest. Two points real and honest. One, specifically, Our denominational fathers in the South, pastors of churches that are now PCA churches, men who signed the PCA charter when they left the old denomination and started a new one, and they have publicly said this. You can go look this up. This is not my interpretation. They not only did nothing to promote civil rights of fellow humans made in the image of God, But many actively defended segregation from Scripture and they carried that segregation into the life of the church. Those are historical facts. That happened. As the denomination, we are looking at ways to own that reality. And your session doesn't want to simply go through an empty gesture. We want to be honest with ourselves. We want to be honest with our community about the reality that conservative, Bible-believing, white Christians did this as a church in Jesus' name. And as important as that honesty is, we want it based in the gospel. This is our second point. Our salvation is not on the line in this. But the openness of others to that salvation is. What is on the line for us is our obedience to Christ and our authenticity as believers. Because the reality is this. Christians repent. When the church is really the church, it's, and not merely a social club, it is marked by a quickness to repent. A born-again person understands that we never repent enough. The majority of our personal sins, you realize, we never acknowledge or repent of them. Are we forgiven of them through Christ? 
Yes. If we have confessed Jesus as the resurrected Lord, if we've been united to Him by faith, our sins, repented of specifically or not, are placed on Jesus and forgiven. And because of that grace, let's be candid, we are lax in our own personal repenting, aren't we? That's why, by the way, our denominational standards encourage us to repent. The Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 15 reminds us, it says this, it says, People ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every person's duty to endeavor, I love this phrase, to repent of his particular sins, particularly. How many times, though, Lord, please forgive me my sins, and we move on. We don't actually stop and let the Holy Spirit convict us of specific things, do we? Does that mean you're not forgiven of them? Oh, you didn't confess, you're going to hell. No! Jesus has covered those, but part of our being more like Christ, part of our being honest about our redemption and honest about how much grace we actually have gotten is to own those things. So when we're looking at repentance as a church, our salvation is not on the line. That's not what we're talking about. But what there is is a recognition that we see we always have more to repent of. And so Christians are quick to repent. A resistance to repentance is the mark of a person who's been churched, who knows the right words to say, but probably isn't born again. And that's not just me saying that. Here's how a late 20th century Dutch pastor named Herman Veldkamp, here's how he put it. I I thought this is so salient. He says this, What distinguishes us, meaning the church, from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is, and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. Where the confession of sin lies out, the church is no longer church. That's real repentance. Okay, so why do it now? Especially if we're already forgiven for Christ. Is this not just an empty gesture? Is this not just a product of liberal guilt or a progressive agenda? I mean, seriously, why do we have to do this now? Because real life, that's why. Looking at the racial sins of a previous generation, we're not talking about obtaining forgiveness from God as a church. Trinity wasn't around in that era that we're talking about. That's not what it's about. What we're talking about is we as a denomination... And what your session is looking at for Trinity is about our relationship to our brothers in our community. We're not talking about the vertical relationship and this repentance idea of generational sin. We're talking about the horizontal relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because they have a case against us. They remember And many of them, as I pointed out earlier, believe that our denomination started to maintain segregation inside the churches. They have said, we don't believe all that inerrancy of the Bible, theology stuff. Early 70s, churches were starting to integrate. Y'all pulled out to stay white. It's not true. But they have a case against us. Many believe it's true. And so here's the question. Living in a minority, majority county, how can we as a white church expect their ears and their hearts to be open to hearing the gospel from us if they have a problem with us? 
Our Lord himself actually had something to say about this. If you would, let's turn together. It's in your bulletin. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Jesus Christ himself says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Know what Jesus says, if they have a problem against you. Now, clearly that can be abused. Clearly our Lord was talking about if there is something legitimate, Jesus says it needs to be handled rather than ignored. That his people are quick to fix. Not by getting defensive, but by humbling themselves and seeking reconciliation through repentance primarily. See, Jesus demands here reconciliation between brothers before worship among brothers. And since he's talking about bringing a gift to the altar, since we're still looking at faith promise pledges, Jesus is clear here. Reconciliation between brothers is more important than any pledge or any offering. So the question we have to ask is, do our brothers and sisters in Orangeburg have something against us. It is a historical fact that Southern Presbyterian churches practiced segregation inside the church. The first Presbyterian churches of most Southern cities did this. Most of those churches that are now in the PCA have already, in the previous decade, owned that reality from their specific past and asked their community specifically for forgiveness. One of the best examples is First Pres Augusta. And now that church is growing and as a PCA church in a downtown Augusta, Georgia is about two-thirds white and a third black and growing by leaps and bounds. They repented of what they did and it was some pretty heinous stuff. You can Google it. I don't need to get into it here. They owned it and the Lord just blessed that church. We weren't around. We don't have that same onus that those churches have, but what we do have as a denomination and as people who are in union with Christ is to recognize that leaders, men who helped start our denomination, defended segregation as God's will. They castigated attempts to disrupt what they called their words racial integrity. Keep them separate. They called people out for, quote, a sinful amalgamation of the races, putting them together. They threatened and executed church discipline on people who would dare intermarry. And we're not talking like 100 years ago. We're talking like 45 to 55 years ago. And they did all that while preaching and teaching the gospel faithfully. I have commentaries in my office from these men that I cite as sources. See, and due to that timing that those men were leaders is why so many of our black brothers and sisters in the South question exactly why our denomination started. Do our brothers and sisters have something against us? If so, what does Jesus command we do? Reconcile immediately. Your session is prayerfully trying to figure out what that looks like. To have real repentance for real life. And basically what that takes is a real gospel. Let's go back to 
Daniel chapter 9, verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. This is our only hope. The reconciliation that Jesus demands among His people is based on the reconciliation He provides for His people. Sticking with Jesus' words in Matthew 5, we need to recognize it is actually God who has a problem with us. We rebelled against Him. We cast aside His gifts. We ignored His grace. And yet, He did not wait for us to come to Him. He came to us. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to take responsibility for something He didn't do. To reconcile His heavenly Father to His people. That is why Jesus Christ came to live the life that we should have lived. Because this perfect life of His reconciled us to God. This is why Jesus Christ came to die a death He didn't deserve to die. But we did. He died for our sins to pay the penalty for them. To absorb the curse for those sins that we wouldn't have to. He was raised from the grave to give us freedom from sin and death and to reconcile us to God. Surely, those who've been changed by that gospel, we can seek reconciliation with our brothers and sisters, especially those from other races and ethnicities, especially those in the church, for Jesus' sake. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be quick to repent. That is your session's prayer. Would you pray for us as we try to figure out exactly what that looks like? Let's pray together. And Father God, we are humbled at the thought that it is you who had a problem with us. That we had offended you. And Lord, in our obstinance and sin and pride, we would have never come to you to make it right. And so you sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of that law. We thank you for your gospel, Lord, that you came and sought us. Father God, would you give us tender hearts? Would you give us hearts that are quick to repent? Lord, we don't want to insult repentance by going through an empty gesture to placate a progressive culture. Lord, deliver us from that. But Lord, instead, based in the gospel truth, would you break our hearts for what our brothers and sisters in Christ did in your name? And would you give us the humility and the strength to seek reconciliation with them so that your gospel may advance? Would you show us how to do that in a way that's real, Father? So do your work. We ask Holy Spirit within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand? Let's respond.